This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Governor Ron DeSantis took a defiant tone on COVID and education in a State of the State address to open this year's legislative session. He touted Florida's booming economy and proposed budget that included a healthy surplus, and he hammered the federal government on inflation and other issues. But the economy has gotten a tailwind from federal stimulus, and some of the governor's proposals do rely on federal money. We're going to dig into the governor's speech and take a look at some of the issues this session, including abortion rights, redistricting, election security, nursing shortages, and attempts to help Florida's struggling manatees. I'm joined by Democratic analyst Dick Batchelor, former Democratic state lawmaker and founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Dick, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. And Republican political analyst Chris Carmody. He's a shareholder with Gray Robinson. Chris, thanks for you as well. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the tone. Governor DeSantis described Florida as, quote, the escape hatch for those chafing under authoritarian, arbitrary and seemingly never-ending mandates and restrictions, end quote. Um, Chris, what do you make of that? Are people moving here because of those things or is it just because of the nice weather and the lack of state income tax? Well, those don't hurt, but I do think there is anecdotally, I know plenty of folks who have come here because they do not like wherever they were were before uh, as far as whether COVID restrictions or just in general, the environment that they were in. In fact, one of my clients moved here in December for that specific reason. They, they didn't like how the school systems were treating their kids up in the north. They didn't like how their business was being treated and they wanted to come to Florida. Uh, he's not alone. There are other folks that are in a similar boat. Um, Florida, I mean, there, there's plenty of criticisms to go around on all parties and all leaders, but uh, one thing I think most people would agree is that the governor and the state of Florida is a, is a beacon of freedom when it comes to COVID restrictions in our 50 states. Dick, do you agree with that? Is Florida a beacon of freedom? Well, let's look at the, the speech and two perspectives through two lens. In fact, uh, when we get into some details on policy, I actually have some compliments for the governor and the mm-hmm. leadership. But back up and look at this in, a, in strictly a political lens and not only looking at this year, but also 2024 in the presidential bid. If you look at the theme of his speech, he mentioned critical race theory, mentoring woke. Mm-hmm. He mentioned basically defunding the police, the election fraud. He used the term Faustian as opposed to Faustian, which I thought was clever by half. And then he used the Orwellian, which we can talk about later, too, the abortion issue. And then the, quote, biomedical security state. I mean, wow, Orwellian as that is. So if you look at it from a thematic standpoint, looking at re-election with $60 million in the bank, and then looking at the presidential bid in 2024, he was teeing up. He was speaking to the 2024. If you look at all the themes he interwove throughout his uh, state of the state speech. So so I, I don't think we're a, a biomedical security state, and I don't think we're Orwellian yet or even Faustian. But, uh, but he made, again, I give him an A-plus as far as getting his message out thematically. I just would note, too, that Florida's daily average of new COVID cases is now more than 63,000. And another point, the state is 63% vaccinated, seemingly in spite of the governor's efforts to downplay the effectiveness of vaccines. I'm wondering how you both kind of uh, square those things up. Um, Dick, we'll start with you. What do you make of where we are now in the pandemic and how it sort of fits in with the rhetoric we're hearing from the governor? I'm going to tee off on his term of falcian, you know, basically the biomedical security stake. And, and I'm going to go back to the, really the Faust uh, deal where you can make the deal with the devil to basically sell your soul for power and fame. So I, I think the governor, again, politically, 
is willing to play that game and stay in that lane as anti-federal government, anti-mandates, anti-mask. But also keep in mind, in addition to the uptick in the Omicron variant, keep in mind 60,000 people have died in the state during this whole debate. So he's staying in that lane. And again, I, I think he's politically made the calculation that he's willing to basically kind of take this position, take these positions, I should say, and be anti-Fauci, anti-Biden, anti-administration. So that's 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 where he's locked in. Mm-hmm. Chris Carmody, on the other side of things, I mean, there are a lot of people getting vaccinated and there are a lot of people getting tested. I mean, I know just anecdotally, it's really hard to get a COVID test for love or money, right? If you If you want one. So people are still saying, I want to get tested, I want to figure out what's going on, and I want to get vaccinated. So how do you kind of... Uh, you know, square that against what we are hearing from the governor and his um, chief medical officer. You no, know, when you when you hear from the governor, he he certainly has. While he doesn't trumpet the vaccines in, in the first or second or third point, he is at all times reminded folks he's vaccinated and that the vaccines work to to hold off major symptoms. But but no doubt he. Yes, but let me let me just point out that he's also said he's on the record as saying vaccines don't work. So he's kind of trying to play both sides of the net here, which is tricky. No, no doubt. Well, I think he's he like any like the rest of us are adapting as we learn more and more. And while while vaccines certainly hold off major symptoms and in some cases avoid infection, infection. Um, you know, it, most folks, including those in the Biden administration, acknowledge that the the vaccines aren't foolproof and that. There's lots of breakthrough cases, especially in this Omicron variant. So I think from his perspective, leaving the rhetoric out of it and just drilling down into what he's putting out there and encouraging is that vaccines aren't a, a complete uh, guarantee against infection. There's there's monoclonal treatments out there. There's a lot of options for folks and that he's not inclined to shut down the state or, or as he would say, go into a complete total testing state uh, just because of Omicron. Again, when you take, when you remove some of the rhetoric and the politics around it, what he's basically saying, at least how I read it, is, yeah, vaccines are there and, and definitely an option, but they're not going to guarantee your safety. And, you know, so we, we need to have these treatments available and we have to go live our lives. Yeah, let me leave two, leave, uh, two examples, though, which uh, are interesting, I think. You know, the cruise lines, the, the debate about the CBC regulations in the state and you can't shut the cruise lines down, you can't do mass mandates. Well, what happened? The first cruise that came back in, 70-some people uh, were tested positive for, for COVID. And then today, Universal Studios announced that they're going to require uh, not only vaccination, but masks, at least some, if not, at least to be tested. So again, I, I think it gets back to the point, let the free enterprise, let the science dictate what free enterprise wants to do is take the precautions to protect not only their employees, but their guests. So I think there is a bifurcation there. And I think this, it's, there's a little a conflict in the philosophy there, in my opinion. If you're just joining me, my guests, uh, political analyst Dick Batchelor and Chris Carmody, we're talking about the governor's speech to kick off the legislative session and some of the bills that will be discussed over the next 60 days. The economy, as the governor says, is ticking along. He says that's in spite of the federal government's efforts, but the truth is a bit more nuanced than that. Dick, on the one hand, you have some proposals from the governor, which would benefit from some federal money. On the other hand, Democrats are slamming the governor for sitting on a pile of federal money that they say could go towards things like affordable housing, fixing the prison system, Medicaid expansion. Just explain what's going on here with the with the money that's in question and where it could be spent, where it's likely to be spent. 
Well, you do have a $99.7 million proposed budget, but about $3.4 million of that is federal CARES Act money, which the governor said, on the one hand, it's not the appropriate funding source. And on the other hand, you're not giving me enough the appropriate, uh, appropriate funding source, inappropriate funding source. But I think, and uh, Chris can correct me, I think it's about $15 billion in a rainy day fund, uh, which is uh, not, not being spent. But uh, let me just, on the positive side, you know, uh, is from a political standpoint, he's governor's proposing $1 million in a basically a fuel tax holiday, right? He's proposing full funding of affordable housing. The leg- legislature last year, as, all, as they always do, mm-hmm. uh, took about $150 million of that fund, but he's, he's proposing full funding of the Affordable Care Act, a $1,000 increase for teachers and other school school workers, $1,000 for first responders, including the police firing. So, I mean, he's got a lot of money and he's putting it out, and he's putting it out with the right constituency groups. But now you say, well, I got $1,000 last year, I get $1,000 this year, things not bad. And by the way, you look at the full funding of education, uh, the governor's up to several thousand dollars per student on what they call the FTE, full-time equivalent funding, mm-hmm. which is a long way from where he was when he became governor, said, I want to make the minimum wage for teachers $50,000. So he's got a lot of good, uh, maybe it's blue meat, it's not red meat, but maybe it's blue meat going into the Democrats. So I think he's spending the money politically in a very, very astute manner. Mm-hmm. Chris Carmody, um, how do you see this budget kind of shaking out by the end of the session, do you think the governor is going to get everything he's asking for? And, and what do you make of this sort of, uh, you know, federal money, how it's spent? Sure. So, you know, they stay of the 10 billion that we that the state got from the feds last year, 5 billion uh, was in the final version of the budget after the governor's vetoes and 5 billion was left over. And so in his proposed budget, as, as, as Dick said, some of it went to the rainy day funds. But, um, you know, the blue meat, as, as Dick referred to it, that's probably a fair assessment. Uh, you know, it, that's these culture wars are, are needed just to give us something to discuss, because when you look at the budget, uh, the Democrats and Republicans are largely in agreement on what they're going for. Higher pay for teachers, more funding towards our Florida's environment. You know, these are things that you're not going to find many Democrats, you know, squabble with the governor or the legislative leaders over. But you know, you did see a little bit of a rub uh, even uh, this week where House Budget Chair Jay Trumbull noted that some of the major priorities of the governor were put in his proposed budget in the back of the bill mm-hmm. because he had a $99.7 billion budget and didn't want to have it be over $100 billion. And, for, and for the listeners, back of the bill or what it sounds like, the very back of the bill of that 1,000-page budget where they talk about items that could be funded in the present year going forward. So it doesn't count towards the current budget. Uh, and it won't be over $100 billion, but we're talking billions of dollars in priorities that would be going in the back of the budget. So, But the governor is going to focus, and the legislature who writes the budget, they're going to focus on the priorities I just said. They're going to focus on our infrastructure. Uh, our, our roads still need funding, you know, despite the pandemic starting to wane off. Our, our, our gas tax is not at the collection levels it's been before, mm-hmm. and they need to take care of our road funding. But, you know, you're going to see all that shake out. I with the governor being as popular as he is with, with both the legislative leaders in the Senate and the House, I think he's going to get most of what he wants. And, oh, by the way, he's on the ballot for re-election. And so uh, everyone's going to try to make everyone look good, um, Democrats included, because when you're up for re-election, you can bring stuff home or, or take victories helps. Hmm. And, and uh, on the lobby side, we always look at that and I get excited because special projects are l- less likely to be vetoed in this kind of year because, well, 
you veto them, you're going to make people unhappy in an election year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he's going to get most things he wants. There will certainly be some sticking points, like data privacy is something that's not a budget issue, it's a policy issue. That's something where the legislature and the governor aren't fully aligned on just yet. But he's on the budget wise, he's going to get most of what he wants. And that makes total sense. He's up for re-election. They're going to try to make sure he looks good. Let's um, talk a little bit about redistricting and election security. Um, Chris Carmody, what do you make of those maps so far? And what does it mean for Republicans and Democrats who are in office right now and up for re-election? Well, we've, we've still got some runway to go on getting to the final maps. The Senate narrowed their maps down and Chair Rodriguez, who's chairing the redistricting committee, uh, narrowed it down to one congressional map and one Senate map that they're going to put forward. And, and so going off of those, because the House is still in limbo and they haven't quite you know, vetted out which maps they're going to go forward with, we're not going to see too much of a change in, in Central Florida core on the congressional seats, right? Uh, we all know Darren Soto's congressional seat has to shrink because it has too many members. Uh, the seat currently held by Stephanie Murphy is going to change a little, but not a lot. And, um, you know, uh, Congresswoman Deming's seat is also going to shift just a little bit, but not a lot. So we're not going to see a major shift here. Where you'll see the shift is there's an additional congressional seat, and it looks like it's going to be primarily in Polk County. Mm-hmm. And you'll see some a little, some shifts over there where Dan Webster's seat is, um, which has Lake and West uh, area. And so if he runs again, his seat will be different. If he doesn't run again, it'll be interesting to see who pops in and takes that seat that will have some lake. On the Senate side as well, you're going to see not much of a change. You're going to see Jason Broder's seat, which is mainly a Seminole County seat, dip down a little more into Orange County, but not a lot. And you'll see the rest of the seats, the one currently held by Linda Stewart and the one currently held by Randolph Bracey, those aren't going to shift a whole lot either. So I don't know if we'll have too many changes on the Senate. Now, the House... That's a different story. And, and the House congressional maps are a different story. And neither one have been finalized or it's still a little early on that. But we should have a really clear idea by the end of the month of what those maps are going to look like. Just a side note too, Dick Batchelor, will there be any statewide elected Democrats in Florida after November? It's going to be very difficult. I mean, the only Democratic statewide office we had is Nikki Freed, Commissioner of Agriculture. She's running for governor. But again, I have to be very candid. I mean, you're sitting on two or three million dollars in your bank account. You're running against an incumbent governor who's got the uh, full control of the, uh, the bullhorn, and he's sitting on six some million dollars. He can raise two or three hundred million dollars. It's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for a Democrat to win statewide. I hate to say that, but that's 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 the politics. That's the raw politics of it. And factor that's where we are. And a couple more issues, really quickly. I know you alluded to one is the, the governor wants to set up an office of election crimes and security within the Department of State to do an investigation of election fraud, which we haven't found any. So again, it's another solution to search of a problem. It's going to cost several million dollars. And then they're going to change the law with ballot harvesting, where you actually collect other people's ballots and turn them in. It used to be a misdemeanor, now it would be a fraud. So, mm-hmm. again, that's one of those issues, too. That an open carry proposal, they're trying to get that on the ballot, and, and also the abortion issue. Again, I, I would go with Chris. 85% of the House and Senate Democrat Republicans can agree on the budget issues, but all these other issues are, that I've mentioned that we've talked about here before are going to drive the debate. And that way the governor gets to kind of claim a stake at the end of the session on these abortion issues, those kind of things that are red media issues. 
and the Democrats would maybe have some bacon to take home to brag and try to get reelected based on bringing home the bacon rather than bringing home the issues. Uh, Dick, I would challenge you on that, it, it, only on the election issue, if only just because it's, it's a story that gets lost in the shuffle because of the pandemic. But just over in Lake County, there was uh, the supervisor election, Alan Hayes, brought forward uh, allegations and charges of a, election fraud and some ballot harvesting and, and some for, forging of voter registrations in his in his county. Um, and, and, you know, it quickly went away because that was a story in March of 2020. And we all know what happened shortly thereafter. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, the one thing I think that's been pointed out is, you know, while Florida has not had on the whole major election issues, and thank goodness, because recounts are tough enough. We don't need we need we don't need fraudulent claims rampant across state. What, what was exposed is there is you know, the secretary of the state, she doesn't have a lot of authority to do much of an investigation. So instead, you'd have these patchwork systems where you got to hope Alan Hayes and his office sniffs it out in Lake County or or Chris Anderson in Seminole County or others sniff it out uh, or Bill Powell's here in Orange County. And, to, and, and they'll do their job and they'll do it well. But I think there is some value in having a statewide office that can be ready to jump in should they need to. Now, of course, is there a fear that that office could be politicized and what have you? I'm not going to disagree with those concerns that those are valid and they're there. But if and when we have an issue, it would be nice to know that the Secretary of State has some real, like the Attorney General and others, has some actual tools in the toolbox to do an evaluation, to do an investigation, and to look that over. And I only point out, like, when the governor called for an investigation on social media and whether certain social media companies were giving by the shadow banning or others of candidates, whether they were giving undue preference to others, which would be a violation of campaign law. And they realized the secretary doesn't really have a lot of means by which she can go forward and do that investigation. So whether it's true or not, that's for another day, perhaps. But but the fact that she doesn't even have a means to do an investigation to say, you know what? Nope, there's nothing here. Uh, that's okay. something that I think we should remedy. The environment, too, has been one of the governor's strong points, but this year has not been a good one for manatees. They're dying off in record numbers. There is a bid from some environmental groups to to uh, get some money to sort of help help those manatees. Chris Carmody, do you see manatees getting a slice of uh, of the uh, budget here in this in this legislative session? Potentially, I, I would say there are some folks, both Republicans and Democrats, who have stepped up and said they want to get some funding towards this. Um, that, you know, as discussed earlier, the budget won't roll out in its in its kind of half-baked form until later in January, early February. But this is something that I think, play, again, plays well on both sides of the aisle. Most Republicans, not all, but most Republicans and all, most Democrats, they generally agree that Florida's environment, including the manatees that live within our waterways, are an important resource, not just to keeping Florida the way we remember, but to our, our vital tourism economy. Uh, so I, I see that finding the light of day. The devil will be in the details of how much, what's enough, is this recurring, which recurring dollars are, are going to be tough this year because we're kind of preparing for future budget years where they don't think the revenue will be as strong, but the costs like through Medicaid and other things will be higher. Um, but if they can come up with a number that kind of gets the job done or at least provides some relief, I think I don't, I, I would be shocked if it doesn't get put in the budget. I've been speaking with Republican political analyst Chris Carmody. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Democratic analyst Dick Batchel. Dick, thanks as well. Thank you very much. Still to come, funding for nursing homes and long-term care facilities is up for debate this legislative session. The AARP wants to make sure that if those facilities do get more funding, it's spent to improve the quality of care and wages for nursing staff. More on that after the break.
This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The pandemic has exacerbated challenges facing nursing homes and assisted living facilities, particularly staffing shortages. Some of the bills before the Florida legislature aim to address staffing, but the AARP State Director, Jeff Johnson, wants to make sure that quality of care is kept up, and if there's more funding for nursing homes, it's spent wisely. Johnson spoke to WMFE's Joe Burns about this and other issues that could affect seniors this session. Jeff, thank you so much for talking with me about the legislative session and uh, issues that affect older Floridians. What are AARP Florida's priorities heading into this uh, legislative session? So AARP advocates every session on issues that affect the population of those 50 and over, which is obviously a pretty broad range. We're really focused in many respects around those related to uh, people in long-term care settings, both those who are in nursing homes and assisted living facilities and those who are trying to age in place at home. And so we know that that is a, a critical role that the state plays in providing uh, quality nursing homes, quality assisted living facilities, and hopefully more opportunities for people to receive community services, basically a, a long-term care services at home. But then we also do a lot of more general consumer-focused advocacy around things like utility rates. And, and actually, there'll be some legal issues we're involved in this year around guardianship. We believe there's been a lot in the news, especially in Central Florida, around some abuses of guardianship, and there have been efforts to address them. We think that there's an opportunity to do that uh, more systemically this upcoming session. What are the... Uh possible changes we could see uh, regarding long-term care facilities? I think the big question is Florida is in many respects at a fork in the road when it comes to our nursing homes and assisted living facilities. There are initiatives, there are, are bills that have been filed and, and discussions by some to say we need to lighten up on the quality staffing standards that were put in place 20 years ago because frankly the workforce challenges that our entire economy are facing are really hitting nursing homes and other long-term care providers hard because the frontline workers who really do provide most of the daily care of somebody who needs long-term care are certified nursing assistants who are not getting paid a lot of money and have other options that are perhaps less exhausting and um, will deliver just as much money in a competitive environment. So there's some, as I said, who are pushing us towards lightening up on the quality standards. The other uh, fork in the road, and the one that I think ARP would advocate for, is actually we need to go the opposite direction. We have discovered through COVID what we knew to some extent before that many, not all, nursing homes in Florida have quality issues and have the need to really focus on how we provide better care and, and keep residents safer. And there are opportunities for us to take that road while also trying to help keep people age in place at home. So is this a funding issue? At the end of the day, a lot of this is a funding issue. So you will see a lot of discussions about whether the facilities should be given more flexibility to spend money on higher wages for staff, which would be, I think, a welcome thing kind of across party lines to ensure that they're able to provide good quality. But what many people don't really think about is nursing homes in particular receive the vast majority of their money between 75 and 80% of their revenues from Medicare for short term stays and from Medicaid for long term stays. So what the state decides to pay nursing homes is a significant factor in what nursing homes can afford to pay other people. 
and I, and I, Joe, I need to say, along with that, that funding discussion is also a discussion of transparency. So if we're going to give these primarily, though not entirely, for-profit facilities a lot more money, can we be sure that that money is going to translate into higher wages and better staffing, or will it end up being kind of sucked into the organizations and, and spent in other ways? So um, are you saying AARP would like to see increased funding attached to transparency and accountability for the spending? For Yeah, absolutely, Joe. So for us, while the discussion about increasing funding is an important one, and there are, there are a lot of components to it, it's critically important that as taxpayers, not only um, as family members of those who, who may be residents of those facilities, but as taxpayers who are providing this money through our tax dollars, that we have transparency and accountability about how any additional money for staffing gets spent. Obviously, COVID-19 is a huge issue for Florida right now. Do you see any uh, changes coming in the legislature related to COVID-19 and seniors? You know, I here's what I would say about um, COVID-19 and our population, uh, the older population. I think in some respects, COVID is less of a, a new issue than a spotlight on issues that were already there. And so one of the things that we've been hearing from members and their families is that we are trying to find ways to help people stay home rather than go into a facility. I think there was a lot of concern, not only about the spread of the virus in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, but also the spread of isolation because during especially that first phase of the COVID outbreak, we saw lockdowns that in some cases have continued where people have continued to not be able to see their loved ones on a regular basis. I think there's a real interest among families to try to address that. And, and you may see, by the way, legislation from groups who are trying to uh, ensure that if this ever happens again, that that close family members, that essential caregivers would continue to be able to see their loved ones on a regular basis. But beyond that, I really think that the opportunity here that COVID presents us is to rethink how we do long-term care altogether and really focus first on how we can help people age gracefully and with dignity and independence at home as long as possible and what services that would require. And then to think about if they do need more help than they can get in their own home, how do we create settings that are safe and provide quality care and actually feel like home while providing good nursing? So how would the legislature do that? If if this vision that you have um, of um, seniors uh, staying at home as long as possible in a healthy environment with family, um, how can the legislature help that happen? So good question, Joe. A couple of immediate things. First of all, the, the legislature does fund some home and community-based long-term care for which there is an enormous waiting list. There are more than 50,000 Floridians at any given point who have signed up to say, I am at a level of frailty where I might have to go into a nursing home. I would much rather stay at home. I could use these services, which are less expensive per person for the taxpayer, if they had them. And we have not funded those to the level that we could address that wait list. And in addition, Medicaid also has an alternative to nursing homes that through Medicaid managed care that allows people to stay at home, which has a significant wait list. So on the very basic level, the legislature could put more money into those programs. And on a more systemic level, the legislature could say, 
Let's, as Florida, ask the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in DC to allow us to, to flip the priority and make home and community-based services the first option that we offer people rather than the default um, being nursing home, which is w the current state and the state in most parts of the country. Jeff, thanks so much for talking uh, with me about these issues. I know they're extremely important to our listeners. Thanks so much for having me on, Joe. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Up next, on Monday, we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a day of service to honor the civil rights icon. We'll talk with a panel of Central Florida leaders about MLK's legacy and the ongoing struggle for civil rights. That's when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. On Monday, we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a day of service to honour the civil rights icon, but there were others in Central Florida who also played a big part in advancing the cause of civil rights both here and nationally. We're joined now by a panel of Central Florida leaders to talk about MLK's legacy and the ongoing struggle for civil rights. Dr. Randolph Bracey Jr. is the director of the School of Religion at Bethune-Cookman University. He's also a past president of the Orange County branch of the NAACP. Dr. Bracey, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. Also joined by Kathy Hunt. She is the president of Oviedo Citizens in Action. Kathy, so nice to have you along as well. Thank you. Great to be here. And Jalen Christie is a public relations professional. He's moderating an online MLK leadership forum hosted by Alpha Fire Alpha on Thursday evening. Jalen, nice to have you along as well. Thank you so much for having me here today, Matthew. Excited to talk to you. Wonderful. Well, uh, Dr. Bracey, I wanted to start with you. When you think about MLK's legacy, what resonates for you today in 2022? Like, What about his words then seems particularly prescient or, or something we can carry forward now? I think his prayer and his hope was that people of color would one day be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And uh, that might seem an overly simplified way of saying it, but the reality is that the division, we need to, to embrace what he was saying for this day and time, because we, we're having, for instance, this whole thing on voter, mm -hmm. voter suppression. Uh, he was the architect of so many things that, that helped people of color to gain standing and it seems now like we've gone full circle and we're fighting the same battles that we fought 60 years ago. I was in Washington, D.C. at an NAAC national convention when the word came down that President Bush had signed the voting rights extension. Mm -hmm. And here we are now. Oh. Uh, fighting the same old battle. And, and, and what is ironic, some of the same persons who voted for that, because if you remember the word is that it was almost unanimous, if not unanimous. And some of the same persons who voted at that time uh, now have developed amnesia. Uh, uh, and, I, I, and I think it's very sad uh, that you know, we, we're going to have a lot of hoopla, a lot of embracing about the principles of Dr. King. But how can you embrace Dr. King and then go so directly against what he stood for, especially in this time of voter suppression? 
Kathy Hunt, I want to bring you into this conversation. Just reading a little bit about the history of Oviedo Citizens in Action. Uh, it's been around for 50 years and it helped desegregate a number of local businesses and was pretty active during the civil rights movement last century and working on some of those issues that um, Dr. Bracey is talking about. So when you think about the history of the group that you are part of and sort of the work ahead, what do you think carries forward from then? What what do you see as, as things that still need to be addressed now in 2022? Uh, yes, I, I am in full agreement with um, Dr. Bracey and it's like it's coming full circle. Um, the one of the things that the founders of the Oviedo Citizens in Action was about was addressing those things about equal housing, voting rights, um, getting our people out there to vote because we felt that that was our only recourse and the voice that we had to make certain that um, people were of color, especially, were looked upon equally. And now it's, my God, it's going back to um, back in the 60s and before where we had no, no rights. And if we don't bring this thing to a close and we just got to be out there, we got to keep getting the word out. One of the mission for um, the Oviedo Citizens in Action is to be a voice and to make certain that our communities are aware that these things are coming down the pike. And so that's one of the things that we we continuously have where we get together mm-hmm. and we bring about the that it's time for you to get out there and get registered and vote while you still because they can take it away from us at any point. And as we well see, this is what this is where the voter um, suppression is leading to. And we just need to be you know, up on top of things. Kathy, I wonder too, I mean, reflecting on some of the struggles that, that your group helped, you know, or on the front lines of back in the 1960s, did it seem, you know, when those those uh, things were won, like voting rights, for example, did it feel like the battle was over? We could move on? Because it must be quite strange to be sort of back again to Dr. Bracey's point, sort of thinking about the same things, thinking about trying to trying to make sure that voting rights aren't taken away now in 2022. You know, I'm not from the Oviedo area, but just talking to some of the pioneers, it seems like they they were still a watchful force. They they appreciate where they what came about as a result of all, of the voting rights and and that type of thing and some of the issues, you know, like but I think they looked at it as if we put a Band-Aid over something and not really dug deep enough to heal the wound. And and if you heal it, then it should not open back up hmm. again. And this is what's, what's happening. So we are watchful. That's why we will never let OCIA die because somebody got to stay on it and stay on it and stay on it. Mm-hmm. I just want to just shift it just a bit. Three years ago, I was invited to do a paper at the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, which is the a museum that has been created uh, around the Lorraine Hotel where King was assassinated. And 50 years ago, he was assassinated. And I did a paper entitled An Inconvenient Truth. 
And they, the title of The Inconvenient Truth was that the civil rights movement started in Central Florida. It was very controversial when I said it, and I still back uh, behind it. And let me just give you this little vignette about Central Florida history uh, as it relates to race relations and it relates to Martin Luther King. Most people, when you talk about the civil rights movement, they tend to say it started in 54 with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And it ended in roughly 68. From 54 to 68, that's the civil rights movement. My point was that the civil rights movement started in Central Florida, not Mississippi, not Alabama, not Louisiana, not Tennessee, but Central Florida. It was provocative enough to say, did you know that in 1951, roughly about 60 miles from where we are right now, in Brevard County, in a little place called Mims, Florida. My thesis was that the civil rights movement started then Hmm. with the assassination of Harry T. Moore and Harriet Moore on December the 25th. The reason why he was assassinated was he was not afraid to to stand before the status quo and, and, and deal with it. But one thing, he did something that was unreal. He registered during the 30s and 40s more than 100,000 people to vote. Most people don't know that about Florida history. And that was one of the reasons because he was a mobilizer. Mm-hmm. And he got people to vote. And so this thing about voting, uh, <laughs> we've been fighting this thing a long time. Mm-hmm. And my point is Central Florida, Central Florida, <laughs> I will say is the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Jalen Christie, I wanted to uh, bring you into this conversation if I could. And just to change gears a little bit, part of what you're going to be discussing at your forum this week is diversity, equity, and inclusion. I wonder when you think about those things, how do you think the de- definition might have changed since Dr. King's era and some of the uh, issues that he was fighting for in the 1950s and 60s? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, now, you know, when you think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's more than just race, right? You know, back then, sometimes when we thought of those terms, we thought of, you know, Black people and white people and Asians and Hispanics. But, you know, in 2022, that now encompasses the LGBTQ plus community as well. Um, So there's been so many changes as related uh, to the definition of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what we've now learned, what's become, you know, very, very uh, prevalent is that these are more than just buzzwords, you know, given the recent events of 2020 and everything that happened with George Floyd, a lot of people are pushing uh, for change and they're pushing for DEI initiatives and they're trying to make a positive difference. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Bracey uh, indicated earlier that, you know, there is still a lot of division and that we're still fighting uh, some of the same battles. And that is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. And when you think about that too, Matthew, when you think about that, when you give that some thought and ponder that, that's kind of sad, isn't it? It's kind of sad. We've, we've, we've come such a long way, decades, 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 and we're still fighting uh, for the same thing, you know, still fighting for everyone, you know, to be unified and mm-hmm. for everyone to have these civil rights. So 
those are some of the things that we'll be discussing on the uh, leadership forum. But I got to tell you, you know, I am uh, I'm, I'm going to be 35 uh, in March. So, yeah, so I'm definitely definitely a millennial, you know, but even as a millennial, you know, even, you know, being this age, some of the civil rights struggles that my generation, I feel, seems to be dealing with this, you know, poverty and unemployment. Mm -hmm of the voting rights and racial disparities in education. And these are still issues. And some of these same things were issues that Dr. King was fighting about many, many years ago. So my, I, I pride myself on being an optimistic person. So I'm hoping that uh, one day, you know, these issues will no longer exist, but um, I'm definitely committed to uh, discovering a solution. Um, just thinking about schools too, uh, Dr. Bracey, watching the governor give his uh, State of the State address at the start of the legislative session, one of the things he did mention, and this is something he's talked about before, is this notion of critical race theory. I wonder what you think Dr. King would have made of the fury over critical race theory worry around today. First of all, there's a classic statement by George Santayana that says, a people who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. You have a situation where uh, the, the white power structure has tried to disguise it, this whole thing of critical race theory, because it is uh, uh, this whole thing about history. You know, uh, as much as we try to glorify it and make it look nice, America's had a very sordid history especially as it relates to race relation. And uh, most recently with the 1619 uh, compendium done by Professor Nicole Hannah-Jones and how she talks about the fact that, you know, Black Americans were here before the pilgrims. If you notice, I was taught in, here in Florida the story about the Mayflower and the pilgrims. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at the story of the pilgrims, the pilgrims arrived in these in this country in 1620. Her entire compendium talks about the fact that people of color, slaves were brought to this country a full year before the pilgrims. But if you listen and look at American history, one of the things they want to glamorize is how the pilgrims came and had nice times with the Indians and traded in, up in New York and Massachusetts. But the reality is that we have a very sordid history. And this whole thing of critical race theory is, in my estimation, a, a thing of trying to gloss over the real story, the real story. Because the, uh, you have elements that, that don't want their children to know the real story. And Matthew, mm -hmm. may I interject something? I um, About 10 years ago, I took a group of students from um, African-American students from Valencia College up to D.C. And we visited the Capitol and they were giving us a tour. And I don't know whether you've ever had the opportunity to visit, but they have uh, a mural painting all around the ceiling of the Capitol building. And again, like Dr. Bracey said, it was all glorified about the pilgrims and the this one and the that one. There was not one black person up there, not one slave um, 
depicted in, in that mule that's all around there. And when I asked about it, because architects, they were built again, this country, this whole country was built on the backs of the blacks that were brought here. And all of the, the well-known architect that built the um, Washington DC, Virginia area, and nothing was recognized, something's wrong in our own capital. Something is wrong with that, you mm -hmm. know? And so we can't move forward. We really don't know the history. We're really not telling the history and they are hiding behind the critical race theory. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's probably worth noting too, that the, the first um, statue of an African-American, I, I believe in national statuary hall is Mary McLeod Bethune, right? So that'll be next month. So that's a, a, a very small step in the right direction in some ways. Jalen, as a millennial, what's your take on critical race theory? What do you make of the kind of push and pull that's happening right now politically and in and, and the classrooms and in the public sphere? Oh my gosh. Well I've I've definitely been keeping up with the with the fight, the ongoing fight dealing with critical race theory. But to be perfectly honest with you, you know, the states banning it, I just I just I just don't understand. Like I I I really don't. Critical race theory does not attribute racism to white people as individuals or even to entire groups of people. Like simply put uh, critical race theory states that the U.S. social institutions, uh, criminal justice system, the education system, labor market, housing market, and healthcare are laced with racism, embedded in laws, regulations, rules, and procedures that lead to differential outcomes by the race. So I don't understand why it's being banned. I mean, if, I think this is stuff that needs to be taught, definitely. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of wrap things up here, Jalen, you're going to be leading a discussion um, kind of focused on the legacy of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. I wondered, though, for MLK Day itself, what do you, what's going to be on your mind as, as you reflect on, on his legacy? Definitely all of the work that still needs to be done, Matthew. You know, interesting fact, uh, Dr. King actually joined Alpha Phi Alpha in 1952. And uh, the fraternity has long stood at the forefront of the African-American community's fight for civil rights. You know, there was mm -hmm. Martin Luther King himself, and there's been Thurgood Marshall and Andrew Young and Clayton Powell Jr. So yes, I'm looking forward to the forum. I'm looking forward to a very, very positive uh, discussion. I think it's going to be fantastic, Matthew. I think it's going to be great. Dr. Bracey, what about you? What, what's on your mind looking ahead to Monday? I'm really, really concerned about the U.S. Congress, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, and what they're going to do on as we come to the celebration of Martin Luther King's birthday. As you know, we've been caught up in a malaise uh, about this whole thing of voting rights and whether to deal with the John Lewis's uh, voting rights. And I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm prayerful. The one thing I can say about Dr. King, he was an apostle of hope. And he believed in the, the hope of man, but he also had to call out uh, the, the inconsistencies. My prayer is that we will get the voting rights bills christened, if you will, uh, blessed. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope, my hope is, because I think if we don't, we're headed for a very, very dangerous future. Kathy Hunt, um, Oviedo Citizens in Action, of course, takes the lead in organising the city's MLK Day Parade. Um, what can we expect 
from the parade this year and, and what are you going to be reflecting on for Monday? I want people to stop looking at MLK as, as the parade and not focus on that, but focus on, on his vision for this day. And one of the things that um, our theme this year is a beloved community stronger together. And when we first started this conversation and Dr. Bracey was talking about such a divided country, we got to start within the local communities and bring all of the stuff together if we can and see if we could be on one accord and make those differences. Yes, we start off with a parade because that symbolizes the, the marching and the nonviolent protests that Dr. King spearheaded back in the day along with so many others. And so we start with that, but then our unity in the park, we have a, a family unity day in the park. I refuse to let them just make this a day in the park where there's just vendors all over the place. But tell a little of Dr. King's history. We give out, we give out cash awards for the students if they can research and give us um, certain things about Dr. King. We give out uh, I Have a Dream awards to adults, organizations, and youth, high school youth that can say how, what impact they have made on the community. So those are the things that um, we're striving to do in using Dr. King's spirit and sell, and also celebrating him. That's what the Oviedo Citizens in Actions and the city of Oviedo is trying to do on Monday the 17th. Well, Kathy Hunt is the president of Oviedo Citizens in Action. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you so much for having us. And I just wish blessings. And and hopefully the next time we have this conversation, it will be a mighty, mighty turnaround. <laughs> and um, we need to reflect back so you know how to move forward. Dr. Randolph Bracey, Jr., Director of the School of Religion at Bethune-Cookham University, thank you so much as well. Carry on. And I wish for a bright, hopeful Martin Luther King birthday celebration. We also have been speaking with Jalen Christie, public relations professional in the Orlando area, moderating an online MLK leadership forum hosted by Alpha Phi Alpha this Thursday evening. Jalen, thanks as well. Thank you so much. This was phenomenal. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen back also to our interviews on wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thank you.